Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to our weekly edition to the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 22nd, 2024. So Lee, I was going to start with one I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I did kind of start with the Hacker News that kind of took me over to an oversecured um, article, and it's called Introducing Maven Gate, which is a supply chain attack method for Java and Android applications. So this was interesting because um, anyone that's ever played in writing code or developing some things, uh, it's very common for you to use libraries or import libraries that... Uh, make your job easier because someone else already coded it. It's a well-known library and so forth. But I've never really thought of the idea of if the libraries are hosted or the dependencies are hosted at a certain place that someone just decides not to upkeep or maintain those, you know, on the web websites or hosts where these are stored, they could be taken over. And then obviously now you're stuck when someone tries to use these really good dependencies. And that's what, they were kind of showing um, in this case where Maven, which is a uh, powerful tool used for building and managing any kind of Java-based project, really simplifies the whole build process. But uh, so it automates it. Uh, and so it includes, you know, compiling it as well as also the project packaging and dependency management. And so one of its key strengths is really its ability to handle dependencies because it'll automatically download project dependencies from central repositories and integrates them into the build process. And in the article, they kind of show um, kind of what that looks like from a code base. So it'll say like build script, mention a repository, you're saying it's a Google, Maven Central, and then you say Maven with some URL to where that package is stored. And what they're basically found is if those domains fall out of date, no one, uh, you know, basically reclaims them or updates them, um, whatever the term I'm trying to think of, uh, then someone else can go and acquire that domain and then put a malicious code base that will then get packaged to anyone that builds off of that dependency. And they can even, you know, basically take the same dependency to make it work and just add their own code to it. So you'd be done the wiser, um, in this case, and there's some things that kind of build automatically um, every time they run versus, you know, pre-compiled code too. So this could be a even potential bigger problem, but it's a really interesting supply chain attack. You know, we've heard, you know, a lot where like log for um, J, uh, that was a, a big thing where there was a dependency that just existed everywhere um, and applications that were just being included. And because it was vulnerable, it was a supply chain based attack that uh, caused a lot of stress and kind of a lot of havoc for some people. This is kind of another method where I think, you know, you're looking at dependencies from a different light where dependencies may exist, but there's nothing protecting them or maintaining them um, 
to the degree that a lot of the compliance requirements and other types of requirements are in place to make sure uh, bad things don't happen. Uh, so it's a really interesting read, and they kind of talk through examples where they tested this and they did this um, to verify they're looking at different repositories. They even kind of created their own base and ran some code. So they proved it all out. Uh, so it's a, a valid attack path. Um, but just a good concept for people to be thinking about um, from like security strategies, development strategies, and things like that, depending on what your your business does what your role is in security but i thought it was a good thing to kind of bring to light i thought it was very fascinating so uh, what did you think about it well actually i have two questions where i have a couple questions for you before we move on uh or even i share my insight here because um this was just another i mean sorry it's not just another supply chain tech i guess it's another tactic uh or avenue that adversaries can take to conduct a supply chain attack but so you i know you have a lot more experience um, in cybersecurity and coding and stuff like that, how often, um, how often do you think that, like, so this is dealing with legacy libraries? Is that the safe assumption to say? I mean, we call them legacy, um, but they're basically uh, just unmaintained. Like, I don't know if the code is considered old or there's like a good replacement for it potentially. But a lot of times, once you build something and it works, you don't really go back to update the dependencies and things like that. Like I remember working on some Python projects that I did, and when I rerun the code or recompile the code, I'll get all these warnings like, "Hey, this is, you know, kind of falling out of date. You know, new versions really require you to do it this way." And there's times where, well, it still works. I don't really care. You know, I'm not going to add any new functionality, so I'm not going to worry about updating anything because the current code base just works. Uh, and I can see that uh, same mindset being applied to maybe even bigger projects, or independent projects. And you're talking about Android apps too. You know, you think about avenues for those as well. Um, a great way to kind of get their foothold. Like they actually provided numbers in here, which are interesting. So they did a total number of the Maven Central domains. And they said there were like 26,163. <clears throat> of those domains, 3,710 were actually vulnerable, meaning the domain basically had expired and someone can acquire it and then push up their own dependencies there um, for this. So that's about 14%. Uh, they did a, a similar um, example looking at the io.github because, you know, people use dependencies from GitHub too, right? Well, absolutely. And a similar thing, they, they basically found 7,523 projects there and only 291 of those were, were vulnerable. And I, and I feel like People are probably better at maintaining things at GitHub because it's kind of like a more visible, more visited, uh, easy, usable um, kind of thing. Um, so that might be why. I'm not really sure. But it just shows that there is a problem there, um, especially when you're, if you're basically borrowing code. Uh, that same kind of scrutiny to have when you borrow code, like, is it secure? Well, where are you getting it from? And how do you know it's secure where you get it from? So. No, that, that's great advice. And I, I think I have, I have a better question then, now that I have a better understanding of it is, I mean, how often do you think people go back and double check and make sure that their repositories are up to date? Or, uh, and what, what really big takeaway from this do you see? Because, or any recommendations about, hey, if you are just importing 
if you're importing libraries, how often would you recommend that they go back and check the hash, uh, check the last update, no, you, you name it? Well, so I kind of fall on the, on the, you want to be able to manage this well, and it might not be the most convenient, but a lot of times you pull down your packages uh, first, like in Python, you know, you'll have to like do a pip install and it pulls down a package. So you got like a local version of that. So when you're, if you're going to be basically building applications, that might be best to pull down a local package um, instead of always fetching it every time you're going to compile uh, because it gives you a little more control over that. But also, I mean, it, most coding, you can see what things, like there's sections in the code where predominantly those things are listed, like imports at the top, or this one, you know, had uh, a yeah, code example I mentioned that was like build something where they have plugins, build or whatever sections in there that where it knew to go fetch things. That's kind of like your short list of things that you should be kind of inventory. You know, we always talk about inventory assets and inventorying software. It's, it's, I feel like needs to have the same practice when you think of dependencies. It's just, there's not a great process for validation, right? Because basically <clears throat> if you get something that works, you know, it works and that's great for your code. But then who's going to scrutinize the source code to say, is there anything fishy here, right? Um, that's much harder to do because a lot of this code isn't, I mean, it's not even signed in some cases. Uh, it'd be great if there's a mechanism where, hey, there's this library and whoever's you know pushing out there, we say we only take signed code. Then you at least know the person who's producing it is signing it and you can validate it that way. But yeah, it's just a kind of a, it's an open avenue that you're only suspect to being hit with in opportune type scenarios right now, but can have kind of large scale um, problems, I think, if it goes like unnoticed. Thanks for clearing that up, especially with the experience that you have. I will say I did like the article. Um, the one biggest thing that I liked to sit or that I noticed was that um, going to the oversecure.com who actually hosted it, their last section of the article was recommendations on how to how to mitigate this or just be more careful. They touched on like multiple groups, um, like for all developers, you know, make sure that there are no abandoned direct or transitive dependencies in your project. So it is kind of like talking about going through your due diligence. And then it talks to library developers, repositories, security researchers, and then like the whole community. So it's not just like, here's how one person can fix it. It was like, uh, here's how, if we're all careful, if we all do the right things, that we could eventually, you know, make this go away, uh, or at least mitigate uh, this specific um, threat, which I found interesting because um, it didn't seem like they were. And th I mean, not that it happens a lot, but they weren't trying to sell a product at the end. They weren't like, oh, buy our right. tool and we'll get rid of this. It was just a it was a true community shout out to say, listen, here's how we can get away with, or how, here's how we can mitigate this, make it less of a problem. And maybe not the uh, next Whisper Gator log for Jay. Right. And I mean, it was even cool. They reached out to uh, Google to let them know about the huge number of unsigned dependencies. They haven't heard back from them, but I mean, they clearly are trying to take the right approach and make the right awareness where the problem exists because it's not a problem I think we as users can solve. It's whoever hosts these things has to kind of set those regulations and solve them that way. Absolutely. And as like, it's like their stuff or it's made when stuff like they, they might have some power to change something. Who knows? Cool. So what do you got? Um, the first article I have is from Sentinel One Labs. 
titled Scarcraft, Attackers Gather Strategic Intelligence and Target Cybersecurity Professionals. So Scarcraft, a.k.a. APT37, um, was recently seen targeting uh, media organizations and experts of, of um, North Korean affairs. Now, uh, APT37 is associated with uh, North Korea. So, if, and if that is held to be true, then we see a pattern that is evolving as usual. Uh, North Korea in the past has been known to target cybersecurity professionals through either, hey, help me with this research, or what do you think of this project? Or, hey, I have this job for you that's really appealing, right? And they're like, hey, you know, we'll pay you a super large amount of money. All you gotta do is, you know, show up and be, you know, do your best on this project, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually they just scam you, right? They either gain information, you know, put username, passwords from you, uh, then they can hack the organization that you were in and so on. But North Korea likes to target uh, cybersecurity professionals and other organizations as well. Um, but what they found was pretty interesting with this recent campaign. It it looks, and they kind of described it as APT37 evolving and testing their capabilities, uh, improving the tech or the TTPs and behaviors. And one thing that they did do was they used an extra large uh, LNK file or a shortcut file, which have really seen an uptick since Microsoft tried to kill macros by not allowing macros to run by default. Uh, so now the shortcut files are being abused. Well, we're seeing that a lot uh, or more and more commonly in attacks now. But this one was just, they said it was extra large. Um, and I was sure it was, you know, weird to me that they would even call that out. But later on, they talk about through the infection chain, how there's a two LNK files, one executes PowerShell, and then that PowerShell finds the extra large LNK file based on its size. So it was more of a, at first when I thought it was just a contextual piece of information that actually came in and turned into be more operational information. Because at this point, now we have PowerShell pointing to an LNK file that uh, it specifically looked for because of its large size. Um, but the, all these LNK files from the infection were initial access came from a zip file. So we have a zip containing all these documents about uh, research and information, and some of it was even made to look like cyber threat intel. So once again, really getting up to par and meeting the expectations of what a cybersecurity professional will be looking for in something like this. So if they do send you an archive, and it's not just LNK files that look super uh, suspicious. It's a bunch of documents that are named similar. They all have the same naming convention or relate to the same topic so that they kind of blend in. And of course, the uh, the file formats are probably hidden. Um, the images are changed so that it looks like a PDF versus a bat file and so on. But what I, well, what I found was really interesting was that uh, and they might have been listening to this podcast. I'm not even sure. Um, but they didn't have any single character name <laughs> files. Um, now, granted, their bat file that ran was titled 111223.bat, which I thought was funny because I am going backwards. But um, yeah, I was surprised. Not only did they use that file but they used a dot dat file they had decoy documents pop up and then eventually after everything ran 
uh, they don't keep files delete themselves or, or were deleted. Um, but if all uh, went well, then the adversaries were trying to drop Rock Rat, um, which is a custom written backdoor uh, associated with Scarcraft specifically. Um, but it just goes to show that, first of all, all the different file types, the, the researchers mentioned that they were used for like evasion, so that it wasn't just a single PowerShell script or abusing PowerShell over and over and over again. They were kind of like peppering in uh, different tactics uh, and techniques so that ho maybe hopefully you wouldn't be able to correlate uh, all this, all these single events to the same attack, which I found very uh, alarming and clever at the same time, because if they are thinking like this and they realize that, hey, if we use PowerShell the whole way through, that's probably going to, you know, just create one single chain that they can look at. Um, but the use of the decoy documents and um, everything, that that was that was like a step above whenever it comes to social engineering. Uh, but another very impressive article. It, it outlines a lot of good things. And if we just look for LNK files and stuff like that, I mean, it, it, it's going to get interesting. Seeing how the adversary adapts their TTPs should also lead to us adapting the ways that we hunt. What were your thoughts? So one of the big takeaways, um, well, the LNK file, you know, being a large size, I think I even built the hunt pack in our, in our uh, hunter platform for that. So, you know, and that seems to be pretty successful to look for that type of behavior. And I think that behavior also exists because I think endpoint tools won't scan an LNK file of a certain size, just based on LNKs are not supposed to be big. So it just kind of quits out kind of thing. So it's much easier to hide things in like say an LNK file where it lets you do that, where you can carp things out and then do other things. Um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of the tradecraft they use it's all things that we have seen over time in general. So they might be piecing different things together, but it's not like I would say an over novel way of getting things done. Um, and I only bring that up not to say that it's not a interesting, you know, really complex attack, but two reasons. One, if we've been paying attention to what's been going on, we should have things in place they kind of already catch some of these things, right? Um, so, you know, that just kind of shows, well, if they're being effective and they're targeting security people, uh, maybe we aren't focusing on all the right things. And two, they're not really giving anything new away, I should say, which leads me to think like about kind of my conspiracy theory, you know, brain on this is why are they targeting security professionals to begin with? And it, it, it's just kind of how I think about the whole space and everything. So this, there may be no truth to any of this, but I always feel like North Korea is like the little brother that's trying to impress the big brother, right? And since North Korea really has nothing to lose as far as techniques and things, if they successfully collect really good information about how big brother is being beat or what they know about big brother and can either sell that or use that for negotiations or some sort of, you know, limelight and look good, I feel like that's kind of the motivation here. So, you know, cause I always try to think why, you know, there's no, I don't see significant amount of money being gained this way. Like they do when they steal crypto wallets, for instance, like they make a ton of money that way. It, it, they, they would get way more money putting resources doing that than going up to security people. Cause I feel like that would also take some resources. 
because security people should be a little better, hopefully. But, you know, there's got to be a reason why they're going after them. And I don't think people care enough about North Korea for us to have this huge way of this is how we beat North Korea cyber-wise. So they, they could be doing it for their own benefits either. So I just think that's an interesting story to tell too. Like North Korea doesn't have much to lose if they get discovered compared to some other bigger nations maybe because they're kind of viewed as that nuisance little brother that's going to be constantly you know kicking down your door that won't really lead to big international problems necessarily. So I just conspiracy theory, right? It kind of that's where my head goes a little bit of why they're doing this behavior and why we're seeing these types of attacks um, in this way and what they kind of mean. So. Um, this is kind of my two cents, I guess, that I, I think about looking at this. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting, uh, perspective. And I mean, yeah, you're right. They made what, like 600 million last year, just through crypto. Right. Maybe it's just their way of like staying relevant or show, like you said, showing me a brother that they can do it too. Yeah. Now the other thing I was thinking before I thought that was some sort of notoriety. Like North Korea is always really good about trying to show how good they are. And if they're able to pop like a big security company, could they parade that around? Like, look how sophisticated we are. But like, that's such a short term goal. I don't see that actually, you know, being the goal, but who knows? Right. So there are potentially other uh, things they could achieve through this. It's just, I'm trying to think of like the best gain they can get. And that's kind of why I came up with that idea. Yeah. I mean, the human ego is a very, Interesting. And we know that the ego is a big thing in North Korea, right? So, <laughs> right? yeah. You never know. But good, good, good perspective. Cool. So the next one, you know, I'll kick it off where it's an interesting article, but it's more about how I went to find relevant information to help protect myself or how I would find relevant information. Kind of like the process because the article has enough there to make you worried. Um, and also bring up interesting things that you don't really know what to do with yet. So it's, I got it from HackRead, right? And it's called the Fake Fix, the new Chase 4.1 malware hides in driver downloads. Okay, so, you know, it's your Chase malware. I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's spelled C-H-A-E dollar sign, right? And apparently it was a malware that had hit earlier versions of it had hit. And I always find this interesting. Apparently, um, Morphosec did a big write-up on it. And obviously they saw the write-up that they did. And in the newer version, in the code, they had these print statements that basically say, dear Mr. You know, so-and-so, we sincerely hope our efforts to meet your expectations. Basically saying, thanks for the right detailed analysis. They'll write better code based on the analysis. I thought that was an interesting jab to security professionals. Like, hey, here's a cool write-up of what we know. And they're like, and and they made some comments about what weren't so good. And now they went and fixed it. So that was interesting. But digging into like the history and how they currently deploy things, the biggest thing they do is an MSI installer, right? Um, it runs through a bunch of things. And they do even create a scheduled task. And so they kind of, and the whole point of this malware, they had different modules to steal stuff. to steal passwords from things still uh, any kind of other information they can grab. There's this whole slew of modules, um, how they communicate, um, steal files. So you can see it's just kind of one of those things where it's an opportunistic type of thing. Um, and it, I think it even targeted, was it like Latin America pr predominantly was the area? But either way, in the article, there was nothing about what to specifically look for. 
It was really about, uh, here's all these cool capabilities. We did find this. We were able to stop this. You know, here's some history about it. And here's kind of a diagram of execution kind of stuff. And so that kind of irritated me because there's enough here where if they just mentioned a couple things, it would help a lot of people say, okay, are we actually okay against this? Malin, you think they put IOC, at least this one article I'm looking at, they didn't even put IOCs in there. So you don't even have that, you know, good feeling, which I really hate, like give something, right? So when reading through the text, one of the things I saw was, you know, they use an MSI installer. Um, and that's kind of where they talk about like a little driver download. And then, you know, they do a bunch of phishing with like, you go to a website, make it feel like you're getting scanned, click something to download something, make it look legitimate. So you're installing whatever, but that's not really the part that is, you know, the part I would focus on because that can always change. It's the MSI installer. And they promptly go into saying that within the MSI installer, there is JavaScript and PowerShell code that was being executed. So traditionally. I would never expect a JavaScript to be executed from an MSI installer. It's just not a common thing, right? If you look into it, look it up. And so I'm like, well, what would that look like? Well, when MSI packages run, you typically have the MSI exec.exe, which is the process that kicks off. And then if you're going to run JavaScript from it, unless there's an embedded application, which adversaries aren't going to write an embedded application likely to run the JavaScript, that's a little too much work. They're just going to call W script or C script to run the JavaScript. So to have MSI um, exec running W script or C script, or in this case, they also mentioned there was some PowerShell that was being run or executing PowerShell. So from this long article that has really no nuts and bolts for how this attack really happens, other than you know there's just parts um, that if you're going to go off name matching, that's the best you're going to get. Now we have something that actually is a good detection in general because it shouldn't be that popular to be looking for this behavior that might even find other things. And this is what I like about threat hunting. And this is why sometimes when you look at threat hunting, it's not just about finding what it is about a specific threat. It's really taking a step back and like what technique or what behavior am I deriving from this? And is it a behavior that could be used elsewhere? And is it something I can rely on as being unique so that my environment isn't going to have all these false positives too? And I think that's kind of what we're able to derive there from digging into this further with some research and extra knowledge of how things work. Um, so there was that. And then the other thing, obviously, um, we've looked at things in the past and built packages in the past around scheduled tasks in general. It's a good idea to know when scheduled tasks are being created. And especially if there's unique scheduled tasks um, that exist on systems that aren't on other systems. Um, so being proactive well, which is also a big threat hunting perspective, um, you're able to kind of be aware of what's normal and what's not because you're you're looking at those things. That'd be the only other piece that I was able to gather from this uh, these write-ups through a, different art, a few different articles uh, to look for is you see scheduled tasks being kicked off and then and that's their persistent mechanism and you see the MS, MS dollar doing those other things. Well, now if you see those two things together, you can kind of relate it back to maybe this attack or something very close to it. So that was really my biggest takeaway. Like I said, I wasn't going to dig into too much other than kind of how I got to a solution to this problem uh, based on a couple of write-ups that were interesting, but just didn't have enough there for me to feel confident that I know what to do with it. So what were your takes? The ASCII art is awesome. I like to mention <laughs> calling out the researchers of Solaria because that's always fun. 
I will say you you had a, a good opportunity, or you missed the full report. So if you scroll down to the full technical analysis of Chase 4.1, they actually provide you with like a 10-page uh, analysis, or sorry, 14-page uh, analysis of it uh, in more technical depth. And that's where the IOCs are. That's where they have well, the uh, domain names and so forth. They have, what I, they have what I called out in there? Curious. Uh, they have, let me see. Anything they have the MSI execution. Let me see, they got a flow chart of um, the infection chain, which I, I believe is in the other article. Yeah. Um, yeah, they definitely have more. Uh, they definitely even have command line arguments from MSI at exec.exe um, to actually support what you were talking about now, if you look for something like that. Well, good. So if they didn't have that... <laughs> You could take my approach and you could still come up with good answers. I guess that's my message. Yeah, for once, I think I would say if you took my approach, which is easier to read the report. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say there was a lot of stuff going in on this one. Also, you got you missed the great, um, I don't know what it's called. So, you know, the Total AB website that they showed in the main article? Yeah. Well, whatever the attacker took uh, had a... Um, a website that looked exactly like that. They did the good old like, was it true crime where they're like, they were a normal family, dun dun, until they weren't, and they flipped the like colors where their hair is all white and the skin's like green and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Quite. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm sending to you in the chat because it's 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 hilarious. It's one of the like, it's like oh, why does it look like that? That's pretty weird, but. Um, they went on to talk about how getting it from the website. So if you did get uh, compromised and you were led to this website, um, you could download or, or this website would scan your machine to make sure it's all right. And then it would scan it and make it look like it did or did something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you would click on the block button, that's actually what ran the JavaScript, which I thought was like insulting. Yeah, that's just devious making that the user really infect themselves that way. But then they went, they continued on with this where after the scan was done, it displayed like a hard coded uh, list of files, but it just like the depth of how can we make this more believable and look real? They, I feel like they did a really good job of that, which is kind of scary. Um, right now also there's a zip that gets downloaded and guess what's in the zip file. LNKs. LNKs. So once again, um, and I think we've discussed this on prior podcasts. Um, I don't know when the last time we did, but it's one of those reoccurring things that um, because shortcut files or LNK files are designed to just run a command, you normally, and I say normally because I haven't proven myself wrong yet, but I also haven't scoured the world of logs. Um <clears throat> to look for every single log that's available that shows me when an LNK file is executed. What I've been able to replicate in a lab is I've been able to find the command that I ran out of an LNK file, but nothing that pointed to it existing in that type of file. Now, yeah, the logging for those, is, is, it's kind of disparaging. If that's what's so clever is I feel like we forced them to use LNKs with your macro um, comment earlier. And no one ever thought to even 
when LKs are being used, have good logging around some of those things based on how they can be used. Yeah, it, it's rough. Um, and I think the one way we've been able to even get close to it was using Splunk and using the transaction transform command. Um, and if you are familiar with Splunk, uh, you may know what I'm talking about, but if you're not, what this allows you to do is define um, an order of events um, or mul define multiple events and create them into one one single event based on things in the field uh, or in the fields and the values that exist there. Uh, for example, in this case, we would look for um, either uh, Windows event logging 4656 or 4663. Now, these event codes look for access to an object being requested or being uh, granted. So 4656 is an object was requested or access to an object was requested. And 4663 is access to an object was granted. Now, if you can, now, first of all, beware of those loggings because those logs, um, or if you turn on that auditing at a does. global level, it will flood everything and blind you of anything else. But if you do use that log or that auditing, I would say maybe in your sensitive locations, um, maybe play that places are more even on. like the common drop locations, right? Right. Like app data, local temp users, public things yeah, like that. Yeah. But we were able to look at the object being at, uh, the object in question containing dot LNK because that, that level of auditing is possible where you can look for the file name that is being, or is trying to get access. And then we added a, a arbitrary time, which was 10 seconds. Um, to look for a 4688, which is a process create. So basically, we're trying to look for an L any LNK file being accessed, and then within 10 seconds, execution happening, and then taking a look at the information, see if it exists. Now, I imagine you could probably do a tighter window if you really needed to, too. Probably, but that was just like the closest I could get, because any time I ever look for process create with LNK files, it was, you can't find it. Um, yeah. But this was a fun project, uh, and... Of course, it's more like one of those like theoretical things because who has audit logging on 465? It's turned on. Right, right. Probably no. <laughs> but there you go. So now that I have to apologize because, yeah, there's a report and there's some good pieces in here. But yeah, something I want to call out. <laughs> um, some other things that are also uh, worth looking at um, their MSI exec call, they, you can specify your input and they have like a web input, right? It's first, it's the, an HTTP address with an IP address. But what's interesting too, is they're doing control on their server side so that if the user agent isn't windows installer, which is what MSI exec puts in the user agent field when it's doing web requests, it will, um, not return anything. So you can't go look and validate if that looks like a legitimate file or not, unless you pull it down that way um, or change your user agent to be that. Uh, and that's an easy thing to catch. And to be honest, I would be monitoring or looking at anytime the user agent is Windows installer in general calling out because most of the time people are downloading files and then running the file locally, not fetching the file to run it that way. So, and that's... And I, I think that's what the LNK is causing. It's it's 
launching MSI exec as part of that command hard code and nailing K. So uh, something else to, to kind of add of things to think about for that. So, And with the full report, you get the whole code that was written, which I thought was funny, maybe, but it's not just a dear Mr. Arnold part. It goes on to saying, we are happy to say that yesterday we celebrated our third anniversary and so on. Then they even signed it like sincerely Lily from the Chase team. Or is it Che Money team? I don't know. Maybe we get some uh, clarification on that. Oh, something else is interesting. So it looks like my detection that I came up with would work. But a lot of times when you see those inflated file sizes, even with LNK, it's done so by padding. There's not like real data in there. It just basically creates an offset of whatever junk data so that it knows where to carve out data. Apparently, in the previous attack of this mount, earlier versions, the MSI was around 100 megabytes in size. Pretty big MSI file. Once they remove the padding and they fetch the MSI file this way by calling MSI exec and having it fetch it, the JavaScript is really the only thing that's left in the MSI. And so with the padding removed, it's like about 100 kilobytes. So significantly smaller um, probably because it's pretty much just the script and a few other things. But that just proves that the MSI file will then be running the JavaScript, which would be the execution chain that I described, which is, you know, rare, I think, in most cases for a lot of MSIs to be running JavaScript in general. So, all right, well, that's all I got on this. All right, next up is a article by Veronis um, talking about Outlook vulnerability discovery and new ways to leak NTLM patches. <clears throat> So Ronis introduces us to CBE 2023-35636. Um, this is an exploit of the calendar sharing function in Microsoft Outlook, where if you add two headers to an email, directs Outlook to share content and contact a designated machine, creating an opportunity to intercept an NTLM v2 patch. Now, what is a NTLM? Uh, V2, it's a cryptographic protocol used by Microsoft Windows to authenticate users to remote servers. Um, and how can they really leverage this? Well, if they get your uh, NTLM hash, they can do an off-plan brute force attack in which they uh, the threat actor has access to a copy of the file or the hash of the user's password and can use a computer to generate all possible passwords. They also can use it with an authentication relay. Uh, which is a type of attack where the threat actor intercepts the NTLM version 2 authentication request and forwards it to a different server. I want to say this is surprising, but I guess it shows how creative, uh, and I think this is not being seen in the wild yet. I'm actually not sure. I should probably check that. Um, I don't think they've mentioned that, right? I don't know if this is... Uh, hopefully, hopefully what happened was that this was responsibly disclosed, um, and then... Um, and then, you know, Microsoft or patched right. it, and then this article came out, which I'm hoping is the case. It just shows that, I mean, with Microsoft being such a big company and some of the the programs having vulnerabilities that they do, you think it wouldn't, uh, it shouldn't happen simply because the size and the resources and the time that they have. Like, what was it? Uh, Teams was able to um, remotely drop malware into someone's, email a while ago where if they because teams was default publicly open that if someone was using teams in another organization you could reach out to them and then you crafted the um a packet that was specific that it would drop an email or drop malware into their email but by completely bypassing all the um security controls 
and something at this level just kind of worries me. Uh, and hopefully we have researchers like Veronis that are constantly hunting and, I mean, looking at bug bounties and whatnot to try and figure out what vulnerabilities exist before the adversaries do. Because if they can, I mean, if they can get this access of large organizations and just have a ton of hashes, I mean, really, it's just a amount of time before they actually a usable hash or a usable password and then they can you know do whatever they need to uh it, it's just kind of a i don't know it's kind of a bummer to see these this type of these type of things happen whenever we have so many different things going on that are progressing in the right direction what were your thoughts yes yeah, so this one's always interesting to me because i feel like this problem exists because this idea of authentication, when it was created, you know, however long ago, uh, no one ever had the idea that you would ever authenticate with anything outside of yourself. So there were not really, it wasn't really built around the idea of, hey, why, you know, when there would never be an instance where I would authenticate to some offsite thing, I would be using specific authentication for that offsite thing, not my own internal authentication because internal is only meant for internal. And so I feel like a lot of these things that are being discovered and have, I mean, this dates back. I mean, Russia uses this technique all the time. They find ways to get people to offer up their NTLM hash. Um, I think it dated back in like 2007 where uh, WebEx, you know, Internet Explorer back then, it was as simple as just putting something on a web page that, you know, asks for SMB of an icon or something, and hashes are being sent just by going to a web page. Uh, and then they later modified that where they figure out how to do templates and Word docs, where when you open up the Word doc, it tries to download a remote template, and the remote template doesn't have to be internal. It can be wherever you tell it it is. And you would send your authentication in, in the NTLM hash to try to pull down that template, and they'd harvest that way. You know, there was an Outlook wallet calendar invites earlier that had to do more with um, a certain field being set with something in it. Um, and also the audio, you can uh, make it fetch a remote audio to play for the calendar uh, reminder um, that they did that way as well. Uh, so, And Russia's been behind like a lot of those specific ones. Uh, so one, I would take this stuff seriously because if this is available out there, whatever, um, I can see it being leveraged if it's not already being leveraged, um, for one. But two, and then uh, the whole point of the story, too, is I think the way we thought about how this stuff was going to be used in the past is why it's so openly abused today. But there are things that you could do to protect yourself, right? Obviously, you can block any kind of SMB outbound traffic in general from internal network. But now, even in Windows 11, you have the option to configure the device that will not let any outgoing into them authentication in general. So when you have that work from home or try to think of, i lost the term for if you VPN in, but a split tunneling. And if you have where you're, you know, kind of on the internet, but also remoted in it, you can identify networks from inside and outside so that windows 11 won't send any authentication to the outside network that could be configured. And also, you know, you can move a, a lot of services and stuff in general off of NTLM so that it won't even try to send it and kind of force Kerberos and things like that for a lot of the services that maybe you're getting exploited in general, just a configuration thing to, to look at and test. So it's something that people should definitely pay attention to. I mean, it's kind of like, like I said, this stuff's been around for 
gosh, if it's 2024 now, and I know the first instance that I was seeing it in 2007, you know, that's 13, 17 years, right? Um, so one, it should be easy to identify because these behaviors should not be occurring um, if you have the right visibility. But two, we should be, you know, addressing the problems uh, as they come up and they should be, uh, you know, hopefully easy fixes, just a little bit of time. But yeah, it's fascinating, right? That this stuff still comes up and then people discover all these built-in ways because Microsoft was designed to work really well in a domain, right? Because, I mean, that's why every business has a Microsoft domain and all these functionalities that we don't think about that happen behind the scenes are how everything a domain communicates and it has a seamless, convenient experience. Well, it's because they have all these background authentications and moving parts and people get in there and look at these mechanisms and like, oh, well, what if... I tell it to look at me for that. What do I get? And it seems too easy to harvest credentials that way. Um, but I think it's why it is the way it is. So it's a cool article. Well, I still don't like it. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How are you going to wrap this up? So this one was interesting because this kind of comes up, but I don't know if everyone's always completely aware of it. And that's a, uh, bulletproof hosting so it's an intel 471 um an article called bulletproof hosting a critical cyber crime or cyber criminal service so we've talked about like services like ransomware as a service or any other types of access as a service or whatever that you kind of see or hear about in the underground um but what doesn't come up a lot is the whole bulletproof hosting and really what it is um you know, everyone's f familiar with um, hosting services where, you know, I want to make a web page. I want to put it somewhere. There's, you know, Google can be a hosting service. Amazon can be a hosting service. Uh, there's a bunch of other just commonly known hosted services that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head right now. Uh, but they're just out there and they're usually easy to use. Well, bulletproof hosting services are basically a hosting service that functions in a similar way but they basically don't respond to takedown requests and things that a lot of other good hosting services that help keep people safe will do if they see something being abused in their space or get reports or requests. One of the techniques for bulletproof hosting and how they kind of run this illegitimately is they're very aware of all the national laws that exist in different countries. So where they try to stand up or front these companies in certain places to where they don't, they can basically avoid any other reporting and things and not have any kind of consequences. The other thing is they kind of do like a reverse proxy. So they do a lot of proxying of traffic that kind of create even better fronts for whatever services that are actually hosting behind that. So it's easier to have dynamic services and things, but it's a legitimate service and they actually even advertise themselves on the un, you know underground. That's how Intel 471, I think, keeps track of a lot of these bulletproof hosting services is in these underground, you know, cyber criminal forums where they will offer up, hey, we got these types of services or whatever, and, you know, it's fairly cheap, and then we provide these types of things. And they do a really good job of actually breaking out well, yeah, what people want or behind some of these things, you know, what they're known as. Uh, but they have a good graphic, and it kind of uh, it, it resonates with me because it's similar to, like, the Pyramid of Pain, but just on the topic of bulletproof hosting. So they have what they call fast changing and slow changing. So if you remember Pyramid of Pain, the very top was the slow changing stuff. So if you're able to address that, you have a greater impact, right? Whereas the stuff at the bottom were more like your IP addresses and things that can change fast. 
Well, in this, they have the fast changing and the slow changing, a fast changing left, slow changing, moving to the right. But they also have the bar that says reactive and proactive. And I really like that. And I don't think we see that listed on the pyramid of pain where the degree of reactiveness is more towards the bottom and proactiveness is really more towards the top as far as, you know, how you have to actually address these things too to get benefits. But, you know, they're fast changing or reactive things they call out on these bulletproof hosting or like malicious activities, uh, IOCs being domains, uh, IP and domain. And you get about to the middle and you start seeing IP blocks or prefixes, which, you know, obviously these bulletproof hostings are purchasing IP space. So it's a block of IPs. And if you figure that out early enough, you can just block out block outright. And that helps protect you in general. But they move even further to the right. They've got the ASNs. So now you can sit there and say what ASNs are associated with these bulletproof hosters um, that can be a little more sticky than the front companies and then the actor and the person themselves. Now, obviously, it's really hard to, I guess, proactively block any of that stuff. But if you got intel or resources or ways to contextualize data that you are getting in or whatever, those are lookups you can do. And if you can tie anything back to those, you at least know you might have something you need to investigate, something you need to outright block. Maybe there's some automations you could put around that. I don't know. But, you know, they mentioned some of that. So I thought that was very interesting as well. But there's been some predominant um, groups that have used Bulletproof hosting, like Grand Crab Ransomware, the Smoke Loader Malware, and then... Uh, what are some of the other ones that I saw in here that were um, pretty obvious? Oh, Darkside Ransomware Group, you know, the one that hit the uh, Colonial Pipeline. They were using a uh, bulletproof hosting. Um, yeah, specifically PQ hosting. Now, that's the name of the whatever they, they call it, perfect quality hosting, PQ hosting. It's a bulletproof hosting service. And what's interesting is there's a big, um, I forgot the name. It's not actually mentioned here, but there's a big bulletproof hosting service. This sounds legitimate, looks legitimate when you go and you want to, you know, I mean, I'm sure they support legitimate things too, but it's hosted in Russia, like the, the company is there. So of course, you know, there's a lot of protection there, especially when you start talking about ransomware groups that can have bulletproof hostings, you know, service there. And, but they own IP spaces outside of Russia. So like geoblocking doesn't work. So there's like a lot of clever techniques they can use to avoid a lot of things as well. But it's a, it's a, it's a thing that exists that people should be well aware of because, you know, sometimes we like to think that, hey, things that exist on the internet are all controlled by the good guys and bad guys just take over that stuff to use it to do bad things. But now that cyber crime and things has become a pretty good revenue business, now you kind of have both. I think, you know, people need to be aware of that that yes, there are things out there, infrastructure and public, that are there to purely support a lot of the cyber criminal activities because there's money to be made. And it's kind of an equal opportunistic world when it comes to the internet. There's no bias, good or bad. It's just all there. So so yeah, it was a good article, a good read to kind of explain it. Even, you know, they have all this context about people, you know, groups, what they've been responsible for, how they played in the of proposing services so a good way to educate yourself and actually get some context i thought it was a great article i, I think it was too and i think you hit the point uh the main point that i was talking about or that i was thinking about while i was reading this and that that was i assume or sometimes it's easy to assume that everything on the internet 
um, like you said, is controlled by the good guys and they have our best interests. Um, granted, not talking about phishing emails and whatnot, but you tend to trust a DNS provider more than, um, or a service provider like this, more than a random email that comes into your, in your box. Uh, but the one thing I thought about, I guess, was behind every good bulletproof hosting service is a e even better lawyer. Um, because I mean, think about how, how well versed you have to be into, like you said, the, the regional laws, the national laws and embargoes and, and what trade or who's trading with what and so on. That, that was the first thing that came to my mind was just like, man, like imagine those safe haven, um, locations where you're just untouchable. I bet those are so in high, it's, it's, high demand, um, and highly kind of guarded by adversaries. Yeah, you made me think of something, and I think it's a a good example of why cyber is so hard to stop. And we all can agree cyber has no borders, right? So there really is not a U.S. cyber, a Russia cyber, a China cyber, you know, all these big names, or Europe or America cyber. There's just cyber, right? It's anything that's connected is part of the same thing. Oh, yeah. And... But because everything's governed so differently, there would never be a way to address the problem. Like, you would have to have unified standards across every country that has anything that can be connected to even potentially try to make a dent in the problem. And you see how well we communicate internationally in general as a world <laughs> on other issues. It's not like it's going to be solved anytime soon. So, but I, I think that's, you know, you make a really good point, like behind every good bulletproof hosting, there's a good lawyer. It's like, well, because the lack of good laws everywhere is why we have so many problems in some degree, right? Um, not saying that we could just lock down the internet because it's supposed to be a big freedom of everything, but there should be some just guidelines about, you know, things being done improperly and, you know, kind of consequences can be applied. But yeah, kind of made me think about that on big, bigger scale i guess i will say though that being said it makes you wonder and amazed that we could come together and do like the big emo tech take guys you know what i mean like imagine right. what that they have to be if they're looking across global operations and then being so precise with their uh, evidence and being able to target it and know where to go it is just surprising so it's cool that we can do that, but it also makes my point stand true that these groups can stand back up with some ease because there's not enough control. So, yeah. What do you mean? You know, it didn't come back. Yeah, it did. Am I crazy? <laughs> uh, I think everything. Bad. I think everything has come back unless it just came back with a new name. Oh, we got Chain Money four point one. Right. I mean, you look at uh, threat actors in general, like they've made a career doing this. How many people want to change their career? Pretty much nobody, unless they absolutely hate it. And I don't know anyone that's a cyber criminal that's like, man, I really hate making money and doing things I'm actually passionate about. I mean, <laughs> that's a smart sell. <laughs> if I made 30, 40, 50 million dollars in Bitcoin, like, I mean, granted, I don't know how I could... And you want to retire? It, yeah. 
what why why not just go by the beach and chill there for the rest of your life well so the problem with that is you still got to launder money i know bitcoin and stuff you can say you don't because of someone anonymized but you start offloading a bunch of money into accounts where you can use it then you start putting a you know crosshair on yourself essentially so like they're kind of protected and they're kind of not and then if you're operating in a country that um I don't know, say is at war and needs money, but you protect mm-hmm. people to generate money like that, your money's still not really safe if you liquidize yeah. it. So so like it's like uh so there's that aspect. You can never really use all the money you got. You only can count on probably ten to twenty percent because there's some big brother that's gonna say, even if it's a good or bad big brother, it's gonna say, you know what? You owe us some of that. But uh yeah, I don't know. It's a, it is a good point though. I mean if you make enough, when would you stop? And just like anyone that makes money, they, if they make money really fast and really easy, then it becomes a game of how much can you make, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that kind of closes us out. So I hope everyone enjoyed the discussions. I know we kind of went on some tangents that I thought were actually pretty interesting. So I do appreciate the time. Um, so I want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Throat Hunting podcast. I look forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 22nd, 2024. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.